The meeting will now begin. My name is Aggie and I am an alcoholic. This is an open meeting of the Atlantic Group of Alcoholics Anonymous and all are welcome to attend. In any case, we hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and or understanding. The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Carol Ann. Hi, family. I'm Carol Ann and I'm a real alcoholic. And what a, what a wonderful privilege this is to um, talk to all of you on Zoom. <laughs> I um, miss you all terribly and I wish this was a live meeting so I could hug you all when I, when I see you after the meeting. Um, so what it was like. So I came from a huge family. Well, it was huge to me in today's standards, six children. <clears throat> and I was the oldest of six. Well, I was actually the oldest girl. And um, so my life began um, with these wonderful two alcoholics that I love dearly um, taking charge and, you know, mothering. And I learned this in Alan on mothering. Um, managing, manipulating, and being a martyr. Um, that was my job. My older brother was gone by the time he was 14 to a private school because he had very bad asthma. He had to go to the school in Colorado. So um, it was crazy, but we had fun. My sister, who's 13 months younger than me, um, she um, and I would get into a lot of trouble. My mother would have to separate us. We slept in the same room at night and put us in a look at the wall and make us stay there till we really wanted to go to bed and go to sleep. So I started off with craziness and um, I know I was an alcoholic right from the get-go because this craziness continued. I was always into some kind of mischief and driving my family crazy. Um, and you know, in the beginning, um, I was really into school and sports and did real well in school until I was in ninth grade. Um, and then I went to the high school and I met my um, my first addiction, my husband. He's, in, he's my husband now. And he, um, <laughs> he um, wanted, um, oh, I'll have to have him tell that story someday. But that was the beginning of the insanity for me. My grades dropped. Um, I got into a lot of trouble right off the bat the first day of school or this, whatever, the first week of school by um, jumping down from the bleachers and getting in, <laughs> and Ron knows the story, and jumping in with the, all the uh, cheerleaders, trying to follow their cheerleads. And everybody was just laughing and it was great stuff. And I thought I could just go back under the bleachers and get back to my seat and get away with it, but I couldn't. Um, somebody followed me into the locker room because I ran in there to try to get away. And then they took me to the um, psychiatrist and um, called my mother in and I got into trouble. And here I was only 15 and already causing trouble. First week of school. And my husband saw me do that. And he said, that's the girl for me. Because he um, too comes from a family of alcohol. And um, so off we went, the two of us, into our jolly little world of nonsense. And um, I wasn't drinking too much in those days. But um, as time went on, I um, 
I did get into it. We got married. You have no time on this thing. I'm timing myself too. I'm already out of time. Oh, I see. I forgot to press the button again. So, um, we, um, we had a lot of fun. We always had so much fun. And then um, we moved into the Bronx. We were living out on Long Island. I grew up on Long Island. We moved into the Bronx and that was really when the fun began. I was working at the airport at, for an airline and um, I would get, I, I'd have to get there at six o'clock in the morning and I would meet my friends after the bus, just before the bus came to take us over to uh, Kennedy. And we would um, smoke pot. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to talk about that, but that would be the beginning of that kind of nonsense, a dry good. And then we would um, try to get through the work day and usually flights would get canceled and people would be crazy and they would be out of their minds and they would, um, one time they started throwing plates around. And I remember, my timer won't shut up. I'm gonna cancel it and count on our real timer here. I'm sorry, people. Um, five so, minutes left. Good. I'm only at five. <laughs> um, so then um, we had our first child in the Bronx, and um, my airline gave me this wonderful opportunity to um, move to Connecticut, where I am today. And um, <clears throat> it was a good situation for me to move here because my hours could work better with the kids. And by this time I was pregnant with my second child and um, things got really um, crazy then. When I got here, I had been going to Al-Anon and my Al-Anon buddies told me this was a good thing that I was moving. Um, and you didn't, I couldn't possibly know what my spiritual powers plan was for me by moving me up to Connecticut. But in doing that, all of my drinking, kind of all of our friends were gone. Our whole life changed. It was such a big to change living in suburbia. And so um, that was very fortunate because that's what eventually brought me to um, to the room that I was supposed to be in in the first place, um, this room. And so I went to an international convention and I was asked to, um, to try to work with some of the people in, the, um, in my company that were having problems family problems. It wasn't an AA meeting at that point. It was uh, EAP I worked with. And um, I got to um, try to direct them to the right rooms. People knew I was in Al-Anon. They didn't know um, that I was in AA apparently, but um, I hadn't told the, you know, the person that asked me to do that yet. So um, that was fun. I always got to um, be with my friends and talk to them and try to help them get um, to the rooms that they needed to. I'd been to a lot of different kind of 12-step programs and I loved it. I loved doing that and working with them. And so um, I continued to um, work with that company until um, they offered me an incredible, incredible deal to leave because we were making too much money and it was a two-tier kind of hiring they decided to do. You really didn't need somebody um, that had a college degree anymore. Not that I had one, I got in the back way, but um, they asked anybody who wanted to leave to please sign up and they would get um, some time to think about that. A lot of people did leave um, and signed up with me. A lot of my friends decided at the land, they could change their mind. I decided to do it because I wanted to go back to school. 
I was 50, not went back. I only had a few credits from before I had children. And so I decided to go to school and that was really insane um, because there was so much drinking and drugging that was going on. Not so much the first couple of years, but when I transferred to uh, Central Connecticut State University where all the kids were, it was unreal what went on. But fortunately I was with a lot of non traditional students like myself. So um, I really had lots of fun and didn't really, you know, drink. I, I don't know how I stayed sober. I did not have any idea um, about the solution. I had sponsors who didn't really um, work with their sponsees the way I've learned to today. My, my spiritual power put this woman in my life who took me through the big book. I was 10 years sober before I was taken through the big book. And I had no idea what the problem was. I just would go to meetings. And so meetings do work for anybody that's new. If you keep going to meetings and you think you don't get what we're talking about, just keep going. It takes as long as it takes. I'm a slow learner. And I was um, directed by this woman to um, go through the book with questions. And I got to do this later on with my own sponsees. And one of the very first things she impressed upon me was um, because first meeting that I had, she moved to Massachusetts, and I would have to drive up there to meet with her and, and with my other sisters. There were 13 of us in her uh, weekly meeting on a Thursday night, and um, I got one minute left. Anyway, she gave me the most wonderful gift. Actually, I try to remember that it isn't my sponsor that gave me that gift. It was my spiritual power that gave me that gift with all those women working, learning how to do this wonderful solution that I can now pass on to other women. And I think I'm out of time. I was told one minute, so that must be up by now. But I just want to wish everybody, um, may the force be with all of you. And thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Carol Ann. Our second 10-minute speaker is Brian H. Hi, everyone. Brian, alcoholic. Uh, Pierre, thanks so much for asking me to speak. Um, my sobriety date is August 25th, 2016. Um, I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. Uh, I've been through the 12 steps, and I try to practice them on a daily basis. Um, I have uh, sponsees who I've taken through the steps. Um, so with the stats out of the way, um, I just want to, you know, start off by saying, you know, how, how much I love this meeting. This meeting is just so, it's so wonderful. Um, you know, it, it just feels to me like how the book, the big book talks about, you know, the, the celebration of the common solution. Like we're all, um, you know, passengers of, a, of the ship liner that wrecked and we're all celebrating in the, in the common solution of being rescued. You know, this meeting to me really represents that, you know, hundreds of people coming together, uh, doing service, you know, being there for, you know, sick and suffering alcoholics and newcomers to come find the message. So, you know, I just, I absolutely, uh, I love this meeting. Can't wait till we can, you know, get back in person. Uh, and I, I remember the first time that I came to this meeting and I, I really, you know, I really thought, I had no idea um, what AA was all about, uh, but I thought I must be in the wrong place. Like this obviously cannot be an AA meeting, you know, everybody was happy and laughing and hugging each other and smiling. 
Um, and that's just not, you know, that's not where I was, you know, when I came in, uh, and I wanted, I wanted what I saw, you know, I wanted what everybody had. Um, and you know, I had the, the willingness to do the work because I saw what everybody looked like and I knew how I felt. Um, and so I was willing to, to take the suggestions and, and do the work. Um, and you know, what it was, what it was like when I got here, you know, it was, it was bad. I came, you know, I came in in a dark place. The end of my drinking for me, what it looked like was, you know, me alone in a dark room by myself, trying to drink and think my way out of how and why life had become so intolerable and so painful, you know, and that, and that got me nowhere. And when I walked into this room and I was, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, just, just a mess, just, just dragging along the bottom. Um, and I, I always, you know, like to talk about that aspect of, of my drinking because I have, you know, the built-in forgetter that we hear about sometimes where, you know, my mind will tell me sometimes that if, oh, if I go back, you know, it'll, it'll go back to the party. So when I speak, you know, and I share, I like to, to talk about what it was like at the very end to remind myself that if I ever, you know, if I go out, you know, that's where it's going to be. It's not going to be the party ever again. You know, it'll be right back to that, that miserable place. Um, and, you know, almost, uh, almost five years later, um, you know, my life is, is nothing like that anymore. Um, you know, I am, as the book describes, you know, inwardly reorganized, um, I don't, you know, I have moments of, you know, what I would call, you know, real, real peace and serenity. Um, I can be of real usefulness to people now. I have great relationships with my family. Um, I just had a baby girl, a daughter born two weeks ago. Um, I have, you know, a wonderful wife, a job that I love. Um, and, you know, I couldn't figure out how to get from where I was to where I am now on my own. You know, for me, it's just, it's really simple. I came in um, and, you know, I got a sponsor. I got a service commitment. I got a home group, which is AG Atlantic Group. Um, I took suggestions. You know, I went through the steps, did, did the work, um, got, a, got sponsees after I went through the work. And, you know, I just try to incorporate all the, the steps and the principles of the program in my life on a daily basis. And, and when I do, um, you know, things usually work out pretty well when they're going well. And, you know, even when they're not going so well, I still, you know, I'm generally pretty happy, content guy. And, you know, mo most importantly, though, you know, for me, um, I'm not stuck in my head anymore. It's not all about me. You know, I can live in the world, you know, with everybody else and really, you know, be useful and, and be there for, you know, my wife and my daughter and my family. Um, and that, you know, and that really is only as a result of just doing, you know, all the things that we're told to do in the program. Um, so I just try to keep it real simple because it, it, it works for me. Um, and two, you know, I mean, I think all the steps are really critical and really important, but two, two of the steps that I try to practice on a daily basis that for me personally are really important are um, steps three and step 10. So for me, step three, <clears throat> you know, like not, not trying to control the outcome of everything and really trying to turn it over to a higher power and just understand that the only thing I can do, thank you, Ashley, I see the time. Um, the only thing I can do is, you know, I can just, all I can do is just take the right actions and I have to just turn over the result to a higher power, you know, because for me, you know, there was a lot of pain in trying to control every outcome and control everything that was beyond what I could do other than just take the action. So I, I try to 
you know, I try to keep step three in mind on, on a daily basis. And the other one that's huge for me is step 10, you know, constantly reminding myself that I have a part in, you know, everything that goes on in my life, you know, whether it's good, bad, or, or indifferent and, you know, doing inventory with my sponsor, you know, my sponsor is great. Larry is my sponsor. And, you know, we go over inventory all the time. I think it's super important to do inventory and see my part um, in resentments and fears, because if I don't, you know, if I don't do that and I don't focus on, you know, what I did and what my part is, you know, I can easily go back to that, you know, self um, obsessed place where I think everybody's, you know, I'm the victim and everybody's doing things to me. And all I can think about is, you know, me and I'm not thinking about you. So, you know, for me, I try to focus on, you know, three and 10 on, on a daily basis. And, you know, like I said, when, when I do, and when I, you know, incorporate all the, the uh, steps and all the principles um, on a daily basis in my life, you know, things, things go pretty well and I'm pretty happy. And like I said, most importantly, you know, I can be useful to others and I'm not, and I'm not stuck in my head. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's, it's just, it's that simple. And I just, I try to keep it simple and not overcomplicate things. So um, I think with that, I will um, stop there and, Thank you very much for letting me share. Our main speaker tonight is Diana. Hello, everybody. My name is Diana, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, that came up suddenly. <laughs> it's just so wonderful to see or hear all the service. I was fascinated and remember my days of coming weekly to the Atlantic Group and to the other meetings during the week that spawned off, spawned from the Atlantic Group when I lived in Manhattan for 10 years. I'm very grateful to the meeting. <clears throat> well, let's see, I wanna thank Deborah for asking me. This is uh, quite a treat to be able to talk to the people in the Atlantic group, to remember the days and see how organized and fine the meeting is and how big and strong and all the new people, even in the Zoom era, and to hear the two 10-minute speakers, Carol, Ann, and Brian, very strong and very good. Very grateful for this. I, um, I will tell you my story here. I will start out with, uh, we know that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And, um, and in my case, I never crossed the line. I was fascinated with alcohol as a child. I thought it was a great idea to be drunk because then people wouldn't blame you for your behavior. I simulated being drunk in the living room when I was eight or nine years old, kind of horrifying my parents who really weren't drinkers at all. And my mother, who was fascinated with the elegant life, we brought up, we, she was brought up on a farm outside of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, but we, I was brought up in Chicago. They lived in Chicago. <clears throat> and there were some very elegant, <clears throat> the powerhouse was one of the elegant hotels on Michigan Drive, Michigan Avenue Drive. And my mother wanted to take me there for my 12th birthday. A beautiful view of the lake and a very elegant place. And the only thing I remember about the evening is that it was said that I could have a drink and then I could have a Brandy Alexander. And it was so wonderful. It was, I have a very vivid memory and it was a very long time ago. 
and I had one thought when it was over. I don't remember what we ate. I don't remember what the room looked like. I don't remember the waiters. I don't remember the view of the lake. I remember that wonderful drink sitting in front of me. And the only one thing I wanted was another one. I asked him if I could have another one. I did. I requested another one. And they said no. Now, that's a very mysterious thing, that a person, a young girl, would be fascinated and desirous of alcohol <clears throat> before really any, there, any physical craving had a chance to develop. So we talk a lot about whether we cross a line or are born alcoholics. I clearly was fascinated with alcohol as, as long as I can remember. <clears throat> and uh, I was listening to the Joe and Charlie tapes a while ago, and one of them said that he might have crossed the line, but he's pretty sure he was drunk when he crossed it, which is <laughs> kind of how I feel about the line. I, I, uh, I drank whenever I had a chance all the way through high school. I was always a good student. I loved ideas. I loved languages. I loved to read books that I couldn't quite understand. I loved big words. At the same time, I loved being crazy and going out with the, with the kids in the cars and throwing eggs at other cars and getting as drunk as possible whenever I could. And um, when I went to college, I was, I went off to college in Madison, Wisconsin, and I had this uh, very intense depression uh, where I would sit at my desk for a lot of the day trying to decide whether or not to kill myself. I was fascinated with nothing. Nothing was my ideal then, nothing. I had a uh, quote on my desk that said, nothing comes of nothing. And there's so many different ways you can say that. That's actually a quote from King Lear. And I was an English major and we were studying Shakespeare. And that's what I got out of Shakespeare was that quote out of King Lear nothing comes of nothing. He said that to his daughter when she didn't flatter him enough. And you can say it many ways, nothing comes of nothing. Now, one of the reasons I was obsessed with nothing was because in philosophy class, which I loved, I loved reading all that stuff, we had an article on, we had to read an article on what was called then scientific materialism, which means the only thing you can know anything about the only thing you can ever even talk about are things that you can measure and see and read and uh, observe and <clears throat> analyze. Now, in a matter of a couple of hours, I threw out my entire history as a, ch of a, as a child in the Olivet Lutheran Church, where I was in the choir, I was in the children's choir. I, we went to church every Sunday. I loved harmonizing the hymns. I used to sneak in and play the organ. I went to Girl Scouts there. That was probably the main place as a child where I had some moments of comfort. But I stomped on it, threw it out, became a committed proselytizing atheist when I was a freshman in college. <clears throat> and so there was really nothing in my universe. Now, what confused me a lot during those days, those days of committed atheism was music because I always had to have a lot of music in my life. It was my therapy. I sang in choirs. <clears throat> Excuse me. I listened to music all day. I had a huge collection of records. I spent hours in the record store 
And I couldn't line that up, this music. What is music? How does this fit into this scientific analytic world that I'm living in that's supposed to be organized by logic? I couldn't understand that at all. And so this um, malaise that I felt all the time when I was in college led to this, this, I call it my sham suicide attempt, where I got out a razor blade and cut my wrists, which got me to see the students I cut, just which eventually got me locked in a in the locked ward, psych, psychiatry ward there in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, this was not at all chic in those days to see a psychiatrist or go to a locked ward. This was this was the Midwest. You didn't do maybe in New York you do that, but you don't do this in the Midwest. So this was really quite horrifying to my parents and everybody. And to me, it solidified my fear that I was crazy. I believed that I was crazy. And my solution was to get engaged to the philosophy professor that I had had in class when I after I graduated, we started dating. That was going to be my answer. Finally, I found an answer to all of this inside pain and confusion and terror. One of the um, albatrosses I walked around with was a fear of speaking in front of a group. So whenever I had to perform in class or say anything or got called on, I would go into this intense panic where I would just shake from head to toe and my voice would, would quiver. And sometimes I'd go completely blank and couldn't speak at all. Now, I wanted to be a teacher. So this is a very deep conflict when you're terrified of speaking in front of a group and you want to be a teacher. I wanted to teach English. I was really strongly desirous of teaching English. But Fred, the philosopher, was going to be my savior. And we were living in Madison. I had stayed on there after uh, college so that I could keep seeing the psychiatrist. And I found out that Fred was sneaking upstairs to see Brenda on the third floor. And this pitched me. Now, I'd known a lot of dark places. <laughs> you know, when you're wallowing in nothing, you know a lot of bleak places. But this pitched me into a bleakness and pain and deep, almost mindless agony that I'd never really known. It was finished. There was no hope whatever now. So I had a wonderful idea walking home from work that I could buy my own bottle. Now, I hadn't done that. I, I was an at I was an opportunistic drinker. I drank whenever it was at the parties, whenever people had it. This was a moment of self-care. Diana, you are going to treat yourself and you're going to do something about this situation. So I got a bottle of cream sherry and I worked through that whole bottle in the course of the evening. And by the end of the night, I wished Brenda and Fred well. I felt this kind of fuzzy oneness with the universe. I passed out in the easy chair and I woke up refreshed the next morning. Now, any rat who's in a reinforcement schedule in a psychology laboratory would figure out that that was really a good deal. <laughs> that, that one bottle could cure me of that much pain just all at once. Well, that was the second turning point. I guess the Brandy Alexander when I was 12 showed me how potential I was. But certainly the success of this of getting drunk over this failed uh, 
uh, engagement was it was the clincher and that started me off on daily drinking <clears throat> now i also knew i knew stuff i'll tell you one of the things i knew long before i came to alcoholics anonymous and that is that i couldn't take one drink i knew that i had proven that over and over and over there's no one or two drinks or three even um we were amused reading the big book in our big book meeting at, at the Holocaust group, which I'm, which is my home group now. And um, that incredible standing at the turning point where Bill is at the Mayflower Hotel there and he hears the tinkling in the lounge and he's in the lobby and his, his uh, <clears throat> project has just fallen through and he doesn't have any money and he's stuck in the Midwest. And, and he thinks to himself, maybe I can go there in there and, and just have three drinks. No, I asked my husband, who's not an alcoholic, did you ever go into a bar and say you were going to have just three drinks? I mean, three, right? Not one. We know right away it's got to be at least three. And that's what I knew. It had to be at least, my number was seven or eight, because after that I didn't care anymore. And so I did that every night, but my rule, we talk about booze fighting, my rule was it couldn't be before the cocktail hour because I had things to do. I'd gone on to grad school with all of this desire to be a teacher and to learn, and I always did well. I was a good student. I always got A's. Somehow I operated on two tracks, this track with my mind and this insane track with my emotions where I caused trouble every place I went, my judgment was horrible. I was very inappropriate in social situations. I made myself miserable. I was self-conscious. I made other people feel bad. These two tracks just ran along right next to each other. And so drinking every night the way I was, was turned out to be a problem because I found out that alcohol has calories which I didn't know that. I mean, if you hold up, it doesn't look like it has calories. It's like it's clear and it's... So that meant I couldn't eat all day because then you can save the calories for the evening. <laughs> and um, by about 11.30 or 12, I, was, I had gone through about seven or eight different types of alcohol. I like to vary it, wine, liquor, brandy, cream sherry after dinner, the whole thing through the whole course of the evening. And by about 11.30 or, not, or 12 at night, I no longer cared if I got fat. And I would get this famished hunger like the ocean, the, the, the woods, the whole planet wouldn't be enough. And so I'd go through the whole kitchen like a herd of locusts and just clean it out. And, and even then, that wasn't enough. I was bored. Now I'm bored. Now it's 1230. So I get this wonderful idea of making a great big pancake. So I make this huge pancake in one of those gargantuan cast iron skillets that you use in a campfire. And I stagger into the living room bouncing off the bouncing off the tables. I always like bouncing off the tables. I love staggering around. My old freedom and my old happiness was to lurch carefree around the house drunk. That was really wonderful. Sit down in front of my two great big two ARX huge speakers 
and listen to the Beethoven cello piano sonatas. That was my idea of bliss. Now, what's wonderful about that is your ears are busy with the music, your eyes are busy with looking at the pancake, your hands are busy eating and cutting, and your mouth is busy, everything is so busy. And it's the perfect self-centeredness and self-obsession, which the book says is the root of our problem. My entire being is laser focused down on this tiny moment in the living room. And I have relief from all of this fear and anxiety and when am I going to make something of myself and why am I not getting along with the person I'm married to and what about these people in the lab where I'm working, they're all doing better than I am. And so I work my way through that pancake. I remember I get about two thirds of the way through and this cold chill would go through me. And I would think, what am I going to do when this is over? And of course, that's been the, the cry over and over when I get totally obsessed with something that takes me away from all the pain. What am I going to do with this is over? So this bothered me. I did not bother me that I was completely drunk every single night. What bothered me was the pancakes. I didn't like the pancakes. I just... <laughs> and so this was in 1972 in Los Angeles, where I was going to school and grad school at UCLA there. And I heard about this group. They were talking about it a little bit in the social work places and on the on the campus old readers anonymous and they said they were perpetrating the idea that the people there have problems with carbohydrates and i knew that was my problem carbohydrates so i started to go to oa meetings and i knew if i was ever going to curtail the pancake behavior i would have to i could not take the first drink i knew that so I shelved it. I put drinking on a shelf temporarily in order to get myself organized enough so that then I would be able to drink without eating pancakes. That was my goal in life at the time. And there I got the big book. You see, they didn't have their own literature then. I got the big book then. And I started reading chapter three more about alcoholism chapter five about how we're the directors, how we're self-centered and self-absorbed, how we're restless, irritable, and discontent, all of these things I saw in there, and I completely identified with it. And a little while later, I had one drink, and the mental obsession battered me into the ground. All I could think about was, now what? How much? When do I start? Should I drink between six and eight, five fifteen and seven ten? How can I? And I knew, I knew that there was not going to be any way. Now I, I never tried to limit the number of drinks. That was never possible. I knew that was not possible. I might have been able to do a time constraint, but I couldn't convince myself that I could do that. And I was crying. I felt like I was falling through space. The mental obsession was going through my head like running through like ants. And that drove me to my first AA meeting. That type of insanity. And that was May 13th, 1973. And that was in Los Angeles. And I ended up at a Pacific group meeting. And what they do there is lining up with the sponsor. 
Now, I carried this atheist baggage in with me. I was studying the brain in graduate school, language in the brain. You know, in graduate school, grad students think they know they don't know anything. But we think we're just about to know everything. So I went to my first couple of meetings in that state of mind. Well, I'm just about to know everything. And I don't believe in God. That was how I stomped into my first couple of meetings. And I was lined up with a woman named Roz G. And Roz told me to come to her office in Beverly Hills. She was a bigwig in the uh, biz, in the Hollywood business. She was, she was a, a, a scout. And, and she told me to come over and she was going to talk to me and tell me what to do. And I have a memory of the desk being about six feet wide, six feet deep. And she was way at one end of the desk and I was at the other one. And she said, well, I want you to, I remember her voice exactly. This was in May, 1973. She said, I want you to go to the five meetings a week. And I started to sob and cry. I was sobbing so hard I could hardly talk. And I said, through these sobs, I said, but I was married at the time. The marriage ended in about my second year of sobriety. But I said, but I have to stay home and watch television with my husband. And she said, so who does he want to be with? Cry baby? No. That made so much sense to me. I could see that. Who would want to be with this crybaby? And so I started doing what they told me to do. They told me to get on my knees and ask to be kept kept safe, sane, and sober, and I gave them an argument. It's against my integrity, and uh, they said, I don't think that it's right. I I told them what I thought, and they said, we don't care what you think. We want you to do this. And I and in the evening to say thank you for keeping me safe, sane, and sober. And so I did it because I wanted what they had. Because I heard, just like in the two 10-minute speakers, how people were in a certain place, something happened, and now they're in a different place. And Brian especially expressed how it's, it's, there's no way to get here from there that, that we know of, of our own volition, of our own decision, that there's some other power that's happening here or some other process, whatever we want to call it. And so that impelled me to do what they asked me to do and to get on my knees and ask to be kept safe, sane, and sober. And the next couple of days, I felt something shift inside, and I had had 10 years of resolute resistance to any kind of spiritual notion. And Alcoholics Anonymous was so welcoming, so open, so pragmatically oriented, so clearly successful, so filled with marvelous recoveries and miracles that it moved me away from that place. And I am so, so grateful because the most wonderful thing in my life has been developing conscious contact with the higher power. And so, so I did the things that the 10 minute speakers talked about. I, I did the steps, I went to a lot of meetings, I went to, did a lot of hospitals. And uh, um, <clears throat> for one 
year, once a month, I went to the locked county psych ward to put on a meeting. Now, this was in downtown Los Angeles, a county facility, locked psychiatric ward. And we went in there. There was a person named Chuck Chick P who was running this program. So I went down with him once a month. And we went in there and people scuffled in in their, in their slippers and in their pajamas. And, and Chick had kind of a history of being a little bit on the insane side himself. Not that we don't all have our own little pockets of insanity that we come into the program with. But one of his was he walked around the meetings for the first couple of months when he was a newcomer holding a knife at his chest and threatening to stab himself in the chest. So that's what Chick did. Now Chick was going to the locked ward of the county facility and every week he said, he said to them, I came to realize that they don't lock you up for thinking crazy. They lock you up for acting crazy. And this was very good advice. One of the very strong guidelines in the Pacific group where I learned a lot about how to live. I did not know this. I did not know how to live. I did not know how to keep a job. I did not know how to stay in a relationship. I did not know how to have a good day. I didn't know how to have a good day. It was just a couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when I remember saying to myself, Diana, today you are going to have a good day. I had to work at it. And so, so um, one of the adages that, that is so useful from the Pacific group is act better than you feel. Now, people object to that and say, well, we're supposed to say how we feel and express how we feel. Of course we are. But there's some circumstances where I learned to act better than I felt, which was often angry, fearful, resentful, anxious, combative. I'm right, you're wrong. I learned a lot of wonderful expressions. Like one of my favorites that I still use is, you may be right. I like that one. You may be right. The thing I like about that, because I can think behind, kind of back of my mind, and you may not. <laughs> so... So, but that kind of diffuses whatever tension is going on. And so... Five minutes remaining, Diana. Thank you. You're welcome. And so I had to leave Los Angeles and go off and take a job at another university in um, Evanston, Illinois. And that was in, I think it was 1978. And Evanston, Illinois, it turns out, has a lot of churches, a lot of churches and seminars, seminaries, theological seminaries. It had several meditation groups. And I came to understand in my mind that this was my opportunity to really work the 11th step, to really seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood him. Really get a higher power uh, incorporated into my heart. And so, and so I found out that one of these theological seminaries had a, was, was having a seminar on Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton was a great favorite of ours at the time. Clancy of the Pacific group loved the Thomas Merton prayer, which a lot of us copied and gave to each other at parties. And 
read over the at the podium and that starts out by saying i have no idea where i'm going i do not see the road ahead and so the idea that i could have a whole seminar studying thomas merton was extremely exciting and i also went to different churches and i had a very experience interesting experience in some of the churches and this is the example of how how we never know really I, I didn't know how much pain I had associated with the idea of a higher power in my life. That's why I stomped it out and, and, and kicked it out of my life because somehow it was associated with my own unworthiness or self-loathing or something. It's very hard to put into words. But what happened when I went to these churches is I'd go sit down at one of the pews and Evanston is a very upscale town. People are very well dressed, very well to do. And we'd all be sitting, the, the ladies and their husbands and their children would be sitting in the pews and they would start singing the hymns and doing the things you do in church and I would start to cry. Deep, that kind of deep crying you do from the subterranean rearrangements that the book talks about. That kind of, I didn't know why. I love hymns. The church was pretty. Whatever they were saying was fine. But deep crying and pain would well up and I would sit there and cry like that. The ladies next to kind of look over like, oh God, right? Cry like that through the whole service. Then when it was over, I'd get up and walk out. And that happened over and over. And that was my great opportunity to release whatever it is that had been holding back, whatever fear, whatever, I, I feel it had a lot to do with unworthiness and unlovability that I stored in my own heart that uh, I didn't want to have the ultimate rejection from God. So I was going to reject God first. I'll tell you, I've got just two or three minutes to tell you what it's like now. I mentioned that music was very important to me. About 20 years ago as an adult, I took up playing a very obscure Renaissance instrument called the viola da gamba. And I play in consorts and I get along with them and we have a wonderful time. I identified myself as very difficult to, to be in a relationship. I was easily hurt. And when I was hurt, I would lash out and make demands. And making demands is never very good when you're trying to develop a relationship. And somehow the person I'm married to and I got together mm -hmm. 20 years ago. We had our 20 year anniversary. And it is absolutely heaven to live with this man. It is just, I, I'm constantly telling him how grateful I am that he's in my life. What a partner, what a friend, what a lover. This is absolutely incredible. And as, as Brian expressed our thoughts so vividly, getting here from there isn't, isn't really possible. Um, I want to share one other small story about practicing these principles in all of my affairs and the disease of perception. A couple of things unfolded. I also picked up horseback riding again 15 years ago. And a couple of things unfolded that I ended up buying a horse, which I, I didn't think I'd be a horse owner. <clears throat> and I had to take care of the horse five times a week and groom it and ride it and clean it. And I started to be very resentful about this. I was a victim because I had to work so hard for this horse and I loathed going there and I dreaded it. 
And one of the things I have to do is put some some oil on her hoofs. And I that I really hated that because I have to crawl around on the ground. And I in my mind I concluded that it takes 35 minutes to do that. It's 35 minutes. And one day I timed it on my watch, it was three minutes. You see, it took three minutes to do that. And I chose to change my attitude. I chose to love the horse, to appreciate and value that I can go and be with the horse five times a week, to soften, to open, to practice acceptance and gratitude. And it's made all the difference. The horse is happier too, I'll mention. So thank you all for listening. It's been wonderful to talk with you tonight. Thank you so much. My name is Deborah, and I'm an alcoholic, and I chair the Atlantic Group. Let's thank tonight's speakers, Carol Ann, Brian H., and Diana. You have heard a typical virtual AA meeting. We hope you will return and bring a friend.